many ladies are you, uh, of you ladies are familiar with the classic movie, A Christmas Story? Just a few of you. Well, A Christmas Story is a nostalgic look at growing up in Gary, Indiana, through the eyes of a boy named Ralphie. One scene depicts playtime in the middle of winter. Two boys, surrounded by their classmates, are arguing whether a person's tongue will stick to a metal pole in below freezing weather. Eventually, one of the boys succumbs to the infamous triple dog dare. Hesitantly, he sticks his tongue out and touches it to the school flagpole. Sure enough, it gets stuck. Then the bell goes to resume lessons. Everyone runs into the school building, everyone except the hapless victim. When the teacher finally looks out the window, she sees the boy writhing in pain, his tongue frozen to the flagpole. While few of us have, um, have been in that, while few of us have not been in that predicament, although one of my children did actually do that, we all know what it's like to have our tongues get us in trouble. Ladies, we all know for such a little organ, the tongue can bring both edification and unrighteousness, praise and condemnation. We have all been on the receiving end of hurtful judging comments, and we have all been the vessel of delivering those hurtful comments. I can't tell you how many times I'd wish my words were on a string and I could just pull them back into my mouth. The tongue is of such great concern to James that it is mentioned in every chapter of James. At the end of chapter 1, we see control of the tongue is one of the tests of true religion that James lists. He has already appealed to believers to live their faith by praying for wisdom, listening to the word, and acting on it. He ends the chapter with this verse, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. In chapter 2, verse 12, we saw the tongue is a test of faith. In its state, so speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. So in chapter 3, which is our study for today, James uses the tongue as still another test of living faith. The genuineness of a person's faith is often demonstrated by his speech, which is produced by the heart. So true faith and false faith are both demonstrated by the way we speak. The tongue is a window to our heart. Uh, Matthew 12, 34 says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the tongue is the revealer of our heart. And nowhere is the relationship between faith and works more evident than in a person's speech. Since James mentions the tongue in every chapter, we can conclude it must be very important. True believers changed by the Holy Spirit will manifest their faith and new life in the way they live, in the way they speak. It will be evidenced by enduring trials, humility in temptation, obedience to the scripture, love for the needy, and pattern of good works. So living faith shows itself in the control of the tongue. Given the fact that we speak 18 to 25,000 words a day, the use of our tongue is no small matter, especially since our words are an expression of what's in our heart. As a thermometer under our tongue takes our temperature, so the use of our tongue is a spiritual thermometer to our heart. 
So consider how Adam abused the tongue. He called God into question with slanderous speech by accusing God, complaining that it was the woman you gave me who was the problem. So this is going to bring us to chapter 3 in James. So in chapter 3, James begins with a warning to those who want to teach. Verse 1 reads, My brethren, let not many of you ladies uh, excuse me, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we, wish, we shall receive a stricter judgment. So ladies, we express ourselves in words that reflect our thoughts, intentions, and personalities, and we do well to keep this in mind because the words we speak influence those who listen to us. And with the, these words, we also teach others. So, therefore, those who teach must pay careful attention to their words. Jesus said that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. That's Matthew 12, verse 36. So Jesus is saying, don't begin a teaching ministry without considering the seriousness of your words. And this is why many are not called to teach, because the potential of condemnation is far greater for teachers. They're accountable for what they teach and how they teach it. They will face a stricter judgment. I am acutely aware of my own responsibility before God as I stand here now and teach. I'm accountable before God for everything that I say. Unfortunately, many who speak in the name of God are false teachers that are ignorant, unprepared, unqualified, or wrongly instructed. Um, Years ago, when my husband was on a sabbatical for a few weeks, we decided to go to other churches to visit them to see exactly, you know, what they're teaching and how they do service and that. And we were truly, truly disappointed to go to a church in Orlando where the pastor actually got up there with his Bible closed and said, I never prepare. I just stand up here and wait for the word of God to flow down to me. We were appalled. I can't believe that he would just come up and stand before. And it was thousands of people, which was so devastating to us because he could be giving truth to all these people. And he just stood there and said, yep, I don't need to study. So that was really very, very disappointing. Ladies, you can all be assured that those men that stand in this pulpit Sunday after Sunday have labored in the word to be accurate and trustworthy. So this brings us to verse 2. Here James writes, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body as well. To stumble is to have a moral lapse, a sin, or a failure to do what is right. When we stumble in our speech, the tongue has great potential to condemn us. It is often a weapon behind our teeth. Consider that the tongue is described as wicked, deceitful, lying, filthy, perverse, angry, gossiping, backbiting, foolish, corrupt, bitter, crafty, flattering, slanderous, blaspheming, foolish, murmuring, complaining, and cursing. That's all in scripture. It takes a spiritually mature Christian to control the tongue. James alludes to that fact that if anyone does not stumble in word, he would be a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. John MacArthur comments on this saying, hypothetically, if a human being were able to perfectly control his tongue, he would be a perfect man. But of course, no one is actually immune from sinning with his tongue. 
More likely, the perfect in that verse is describing those who are spiritually mature and thus able to control their tongues. To help us understand this, James begins a series of illustrations to show the power and danger of the tongue. In James 3, uh, verses 3 through 5a, we'll see our first two examples. And here we read, Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. First, James considers how a bit in a horse's mouth can control such a giant animal. A horse's bit is merely five inches wide, but has the ability to turn this really large animal in a full direction. And without this bit, a horse is really absolutely useless and wild and undisciplined. On large cruise ships, the rudder is very small compared to the size of the ship, and the instrument that controls the rudder is even smaller. Jack and I have had the privilege of going on several cruise, um, cruises, and one time we had the opportunity to go into the control room, and the joystick to control the rudder and the ship. I mean, it's like six inches high. It's this tiny little thing, yet with the control of the, what, I don't know, whatever the guy is called on a cruise ship, the, you know, the guy that steers the ship, the captain, you know, he's able to steer this, this really big ship. So uh, the point that James is making is when, uh, when we control the tongue, our whole lives are directed to a useful purpose. And how incredible that such a small part of the body has the potential to uh, control one's whole person and exert such influence over every area of life. Our words can be gracious and kind, loving, true, thoughtful, holy, sensitive, edifying, gentle, comforting, a blessing, wise, and unselfish. But this is only possible when our tongues are under the control and the influence of the Holy Spirit. Yet James isn't through yet in his warnings about the dangers of the tongue. James' next point focuses on the tongue's tremendous potential to corrupt and destroy. In verses 5b through 6, see how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among, among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Sinful words can quickly spread destruction, and the aftermath of sinful words can permeate and ruin the lives of others. Sometimes, and can permeate the, uh, sometimes permanently. Think of a forest, a physical forest fire. Only tiny flame, one tiny flame can set a whole town on fire. Think about the current fires in California. Whether they were ignited by man or nature, those fires are now destroying well over a million acres. And remember the infamous Chicago fire? Over 17,500 buildings burned, 300 people died in that fire, 125,000 were left homeless, and $400 million worth of property was destroyed by one little flame. Truly, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Vile words can stain the whole body, 
and they can pollute the flesh. Misuse of the tongue touches the whole network of people in your life, and it is set on fire by Gehenna itself. The destructive power of the tongue is satanic. James' language here is as strong as it gets. He warns that words spoken carelessly, unwisely, are destructive and can set ablaze the whole sphere of our existence. This is true, and, and this is in turn severely affects our family life, our church life, and our community life. The Apostle James continues his illustration um, by referring to animal life. Notice verses 7 through 8. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile, and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Isn't it interesting that man can tame the worst and deadliest of wild beasts, whether they walk, fly, swim, or crawl, but no man can tame the tongue? No one has that power. And James is not saying it can't be tamed. He's only saying that man can't tame it. Only God can tame the tongue. Think about, again back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. After they sinned in the garden and ate of the forbidden fruit, their tongues were immediately full of deadly poison. Adam blamed Eve for their sin. Eve blamed the servant, serpent. But in reality, they were both blaming God for, his, for their iniquities. And just as a venomous snake deals out deadly poison, so the tongue can deal out the, deadly, the venom of deadly speech. So next we see how unnaturally inconsistent the tongue really is. This lesson is illustrated by a series of contrasts, looking at verses 9 through 12. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring uh, does a spring forth, pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The tongue can be used in the noblest and loftiest ways when it is used to praise God, but the same member can be used in the most degrading and injurious way when it speaks evil of men. It is utterly sinful to bless our God and Heavenly Father and with the same tongue call anathema down upon any man created in the image of God. To underscore this hypocrisy, James presents a series of contrasts. He points out that no one ever drew fresh and salt water from the same spigot, and no fountain can yield both fresh and salt water in the same place. No believer can justify his profession of faith if his tongue goes undisciplined. How often do people send forth the fresh water of praise to God and then go home and speak forth the bitter salt of an angry speech? Likewise, you cannot have olives on a fig tree, nor can you produce figs off a grapevine. So true believers will show their faith through their speech. Bitter words come from a bitter heart. Remember that every tree is known by its fruit, and out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The tongue, then, is a window into our heart. So this brings us to verses 13 through 18, where James is comparing heavenly wisdom to earthly wisdom. 
In verse 13, James writes, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. So here, James is edifying, uh, trying to identify who is really living a righteous life by asking the question, who is wise and has understanding? Wisdom for the Jewish believers carried a deep meaning of careful application of knowledge to personal living. And understanding is the idea of specialized knowledge, such as a highly skilled tradesman or profession. James is basically saying, if you claim to have wisdom and understanding, then show it by your good behavior. As with faith, back in James 2.17, we, we saw that if wisdom and understanding are not demonstrated in righteous, godly living, then they're devoid of spiritual value. So James is telling us that true, godly uh, wisdom and understanding should be evidenced through our behavior with deeds of gentleness. If you claim wisdom and understanding, you'll first show it by your good behavior, and secondly, by your good deeds. Our fruit is evidence of our salvation, which is a changed heart. Thirdly, we are to demonstrate wisdom and understanding with an attitude of gentleness. We are to be tender and gracious in our speech, not arrogant and prideful. And gentleness is a willingness to be under the sovereign control of God. It is a God-honoring character trait a fruit of the Spirit. So evidence of false wisdom is bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in our hearts, arrogance, and lying against the truth. False wisdom is of the world and is based on man's own understanding, standards, and objectives. In false wisdom, man is supreme, and he does not recognize God's sovereignty, God's will, or God's truth. Verse 14 gives us the characteristics of false wisdom, which reads, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Think about these traits for a moment. First, bitter jealousy. This is the worst form of jealousy. It describes those who are harsh, sharp, cutting, and destructive, destructive, having no concern for the feelings or the welfare of those who are its objects. A second characteristic is selfish ambition. Sadly, we are seeing this played out in our country today. Those seeking power and political gain will stop at nothing and incur any cost to obtain their goal. Those with motives based on the world's wisdom inevitably are arrogant and selfish ambition results in commotion and vile practices. When worldly wisdom creeps into the church, it, it opens the door for every kind of satanic opposition. And this always hinders the spiritual progress of God's people. In James 5.19, the apostle writes, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, clearly identifying truth as a synonym of gospel where true wisdom starts. So conversely, unredeemed man is clearly characterized by worldly, earthly wisdom leading to a life dominated by self. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, and demonic. Earthly wisdom is restricted to man's theorizing discovery and accomplishments. Natural wisdom is sensual and fleshly. And the wisdom from above is the total opposite of worldly or false wisdom. 
So James is saying, if you claim to be a Christian, your life should not be characterized by selfish ambition or bitter jealousy. And how refreshing is it then to arrive at verses 17 through 18? I love the word but in scripture. In life, it's, it is encouraging to hear the, the words such as, you didn't get a high grade, but you passed, or you have a serious illness, but it's treatable. So James now turns the corner, and after telling us and elaborating on the wisdom that is earthly, sensual, and laced with selfish ambition, he says, but the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The but here implies that the wisdom from above is the exact opposite of worldly or false wisdom. Notice the characteristics of the wisdom that comes from above is pure, which meaning it is a contrast to that which is sensual. It's free of contamination and defilement. It is free from selfish motives. And this wisdom is evident when a believer seeks the will of God above all things. It is peaceable and gentle, meaning those with wisdom from above are forbearing, courteous, considerate. It's open to reason, meaning there's a willingness to yield without dispute and to maintain a teachable spirit. Those with godly wisdom are full of mercy and good fruits, being without partiality and without hypocrisy. What a difference godly wisdom makes in one's life. It pours itself out in compassion. It pleads with sinners, and it pities the suffering. It is always dependable, consistent, honest, and sincere. Truly, those who sow a harvest of righteousness and peace will reap the fruit of the Spirit and the peace that comes with righteous living. Those who sow peace will reap peace. The content of chapter 3 underscores why the theme of James is practical Christian living. It parallels the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. Chapter 3, like the other chapters in James, doesn't emphasize theoretical knowledge, but rather godly behavior. Controlling our tongues and seeking wisdom from above are two areas of Christian living that evidence the very heart and soul of godly living and behavior. Ladies, may this chapter aid us in achieving a living faith, which is evidenced by righteous living and godly behavior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these wise words of James, Lord. I pray that we would always uh, seek you, Lord, that we would always uh, be gracious to those, that we would control our tongue, Lord, that we would be controlled by the Holy Spirit, Father. I thank you for the ladies that are here and listening, Lord. May we take these words to heart, not my words, Lord, but your words. May we take them to heart, that we might be changed through this, Lord, that we would be edifying and glorifying to those around us, to those sisters and brothers in Christ, Lord, that we love so dearly. I thank you for the opportunity, the time that I've been able to share with the ladies, Lord. May we um, glorify you through all we say and do, and I pray these in Christ's name. Amen.